Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Lung Cancer Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. David Spiegel for an update on how advances in clinical research are impacting daily patient care. And to begin, he presented a 62-year-old woman with an adenocarcinoma that contained an EGFR mutation. When I met this patient, this actually is a pretty common scenario to be called to the hospital to see somebody who's just been diagnosed who perhaps came in with shortness of breath or a cough and their primary care doctor thought it was pneumonia and it turns out it might be a pleural effusion and that gets evaluated and unfortunately patients find out they have lung cancer. So by definition, when we meet patients like this with effusions, they have advanced disease or incurable lung cancer. And the case here was a woman who was very healthy up until her illness that prompted her to go to the hospital, and an effusion was discovered, a biopsy or an evaluation of that fluid revealed lung cancer. And quite surprising for the patient and her family, she has adult children who were very interested in her care and really shocked that she had lung cancer because their mother was a non-smoker. You know, how could this be somebody who was so healthy her whole life who had never smoked, never been exposed to smoke, was not in an occupation where they would have been exposed to carcinogens. And yet, here we were saying she had lung cancer. So I think immediately in a situation like this, there's the shock of a diagnosis that almost is not expected. And then the realization that somebody has incurable or advanced cancer, and in this case, suffering, you know, in the hospital, really trying to get their breath. And what I find here is in the past where we had really just chemotherapy to offer patients, and I don't want to minimize that that has been an effective strategy, still is. What's been nice here is the ability to offer a patient something other than chemotherapy. And in this case, we discovered this patient had a mutation in what's called the EGFR receptor, the epidermal growth factor receptor. This was a result that came about because we asked our pathologist to send the tissue for what we term molecular testing. This has become more standard now in the four years since I met this patient. But at that time, it was something we knew was important, but really had not moved into a standard process for our pathology department. And to kind of cut to the chase, we did this testing. It did take about two and a half weeks to get the results back. And what the results showed us is that this patient while still a candidate for things like chemotherapy, was also a candidate for just a pill. And in this case, this patient received erlotinib. And the nice part of this story was kind of taking all that anxiety, disbelief, and showing the patient and their family that we can do well here with just a pill. It's not going to be something that she's going to be cured of, but she can do well with treatment for this cancer. And in this case, she did do well. She was on therapy for over three and a half years. And unfortunately, those visits still with me where she has to have new pictures to see how things are going are very anxiety-provoking times for her, even this far down the road. In this last visit, where usually there's such actually easy visits because everything's going so well, this last visit, unfortunately, we discovered at a little over three and a half years that the cancer had progressed so that this pill had stopped working. So when you say it progressed, had the effusion come back? 
You know, the effusion we were able to solve initially with actually a procedure, a surgical procedure in the hospital called pleurodesis, where we drain the fluid off and use kind of a powder to make that fluid not come back, essentially. And she never had a return in that fluid. And I attribute that good fortune to the benefits of her pill, of her lotnib. But yeah, so it kind of an interesting experience for everybody, you know, the doctor, our nursing staff, you know, how could this patient do so well on a pill that at least at that time, although standard was not something people were used to using in the first line setting. So when she had progression, where was it? So she has disease in both lungs or she has multiple spots or nodules and there were new spots and there were much larger lesions. I had Over time, I've been doing scanning with her, and we've tried to make those less frequent over time, and we've noticed slight changes, slight growth, and we've been watching those. But this time, we're seeing new lesions, new growth. And, you know, this is actually an interesting area. You know, what do you do for patients like this where pills work so well and there's been growth now? Do you just ride out the pill as long as you can until they start to suffer, or do you make changes? Right, and I'd like you to kind of sort out how, how long ago was this that you diagnosed her with progression? This just happened about six or seven weeks ago. I met with her and gave her this news. So I want to pursue what happened and what decision you made at this point, but I want to kind of backtrack and go through a few aspects of the case before we get there. First, can you talk a little bit about what these mutations are? And is this like other kinds of mutations that are hereditable or more in the tumor? Yeah, you know, I think the term mutation certainly has been used for a while now in oncology. I think a lot of us are used to the term in breast cancer care, you know, where someone has a BRCA mutation. You know, those mutations get put in a different category. They're called germline mutations, so mutations that folks are born with. When we talk about things like EGFR mutations, and maybe we'll get into other things like alterations such as ALK or ROS or KRAS, we're talking about what are called somatic mutations. These are abnormalities in the genome that are acquired at some point after birth. You know, we think these are later in life. It might be due to some environmental exposure or it might be, for most patients, it's an unknown insult to the genome that results in these mutations. But I tell patients, I tell my colleagues, my nursing staff certainly, that the best way to think about this is that these are signals or alterations that create signaling in the cancer cell that causes it to behave in a unique way and can cause a normal cell to behave in an abnormal way that defines it as cancer. And the goal, at least in many of these alterations, and EGFR is maybe the best example in lung cancer, is to shut that switch down to turn it off. And Literally, this is a protein on the surface of cancer cells. That's where this switch sits, this receptor sits. And so to shut that switch down, to turn it off, there are different ways you could go about that. You could come from the outside with a therapy like what we call an antibody, a protein that actually attaches to that switch. We have drugs that we're all familiar with. One's called cetuximab, used in colorectal cancer treatment and head and neck cancer treatment. Actually, another drug called panitumumab, and even some newer drugs that look promising, even in lung cancer, we're learning about in the last couple of months, that maybe do that in a better way than those two drugs. And then there are ways to affect this protein or this switch from the inside of the cell, and kind of a general class of drugs that does that are called small molecule or tyrosine kinase inhibitors, or TKIs. Those are terms that all kind of say the same thing. But the idea here is somewhat simplistic that this protein sitting on the surface of the cancer cell has a portion of it that's inside the cancer cell 
that signals other proteins within the cell that ultimately leads to affecting the DNA of that cancer cell to cause it to behave in a certain fashion. So what we're trying to do with these drugs, these pills, and in the case of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors or TKIs, is to turn that signaling off in several drugs. And we have three now actually on the market. The one we've been referring to in this patient is erlotinib. One that we used to have that's not readily available anymore in the U.S. at least is gefitinib. And then a drug actually that just came on the market in the last couple of months is afatinib, a drug that's been approved for lung cancer treatment. But all these drugs are designed to do the same thing, to go actually inside of the cell and shut down what's called the kinase domain or the signaling part of the protein on the cancer cell. And not to make this overly complicated, but these drugs are particularly effective at shutting down that signaling in a way that results in these dramatic shrinkage of cancers and control of disease. And it's been a real blockbuster, a real step forward in the management of lung cancer. So I actually want to ask you a little bit more about how these drugs work, but one of the issues with these kinds of drugs is side effects. Of course, it's not chemotherapy, which is great. You take it by mouth. You don't see the typical chemo side effects. Can you talk about, though, what is seen and what was seen with this woman over the three and a half years that she took treatment? Yeah, I think when these drugs first came out, uh, I think doctors were quick to say, oh, those aren't real side effects. This is not like cisplatin or adriamycin that where patients are going to get very sick with nausea and losing their hair and lowering their blood counts. But in fact, the side effects are very real. And even, and this gets talked about a lot in oncology, at least on the research end, but even low-grade side effects when you have them every day are very troubling for patients. So these drugs, while they don't directly cause nausea and vomiting and lowering of the blood counts, more typical side effects of intravenous chemotherapies, they do have pretty profound effects or can have effects on the skin organ system. So we worry about things like rash. I mean, that's not just a you know, rash like when you're a teenager. That can be a quite severe rash, acne form-like rash over your face, your chest, your back, not necessarily limited to sun-exposed areas. The scalp can be quite irritated at times. You can have nail eyelash changes that can be disturbing where those actually irritate the eyes. There can be GI side effects in terms of diarrhea. I mean, even though that may not be going to the bathroom 10 times a day, it could be just having loose stools all the time. Even one or two or three times a day is troubling for elderly patients especially. In this case, this patient, it became a joke. Her hair became brittle. She had periods of time where her skin became quite dry and red. She always would say to me, you know, David, I don't want to make changes because the drug's working so I can deal with this. But You know, we did try to modify things with her dosing and using actually help from my dermatology colleagues with topical lotions, creams, occasionally breaks from therapy, antibiotics. You know, I just, even though I've been using erlotinib for a while now, I was so kind of dismayed recently when a patient came in who has been on erlotinib for a little while and had probably one of the worst rashes I've ever seen and whose daughter-in-law is a nurse and it made me feel so bad that that had happened on somebody where, you know, you think things are going so well and that everybody's attuned to kind of how to manage things. And basically, she had just kept taking the pill, hadn't really told her daughter-in-law and just assumed that this would go away. But probably one of the worst rashes I've seen, and this comes after years of using her Lodnib, you know, just shows you that sometimes things can get away from you and quite serious. But what's nice is, 
Generally speaking, the skin effects do resolve with breaks or holds in the therapy. At least in my experience, patients get better very quickly when you hold things. But then, you know, you can have a quick recurrence in these side effects when you resume therapy. So sometimes it requires a lowering of the dosing. Now, this lady went almost four years on her Lotnib. How does that compare to the typical patient? And how often do you see patients who have these mutations or get treatment and they just progress right through it? Yeah, that's a good question, Neil, because we're supposed to not see patients like this, right? We expect that these drugs will control cancer on average for, you know, maybe approximately a year or a year and a half in some cases, but then that all patients do progress. To have patients like this that are out almost four years is really very unusual, but, you know, that's why we talk about averages because there are patients on the high end here, and she's representative of that. And not to say I'm a good doctor, I mean, but I have several patients like this, and my colleagues around the country tell me of stories of similar patients, so we know it happens at a reasonably frequent rate. But then we have patients on the other end, right, who you start or lot nib and things don't go well. I can think of a, actually an older woman in her 90s who presented with a pleural effusion and the surgeon wanted to take her immediately for a pleurodesis and we discovered she had an EGFR mutation actually within five days because of some advances in our ability to understand who has lung cancer and do reflexive testing earlier. And so we you know, I shared the good news that we could try her lotnib with her. And, you know, in her case, things didn't go that way. She got side effects from her lotnib very quickly, and her effusion did not get better. And in fact, ultimately, she continued to suffer from uh, delay in having that procedure done. And I took her off her lotnib. And in her case, she ultimately went on to hospice. But not everybody seems to respond. And in those that do respond, it doesn't always last very long. I'm curious what this patient's lifestyle was like before she was diagnosed and what she's been doing the last four years and sort of how she adjusted to this diagnosis. Yeah, well, I think it was very traumatic for her and her husband and daughters in, you know, the news and kind of living with a diagnosis of terminal cancer. It's one of those things where I imagine for her only having lived the last three and a half years doing that well has given her some slow probably acceptance of, you know, okay, I can live with this. I mean, you'd love for someone to be able to see that day one that that can happen. In fact, this particular patient, I tell her that she's, I joke with her that I talk about her a lot with other patients. I mean, I don't give her identity away, but I use her as an example of, you know, trying to be hopeful for patients that that can happen. You know, I do have patients with stage four disease who I meet in the hospital who are very sick in the ICU. And here we are almost three and a half years later. I mean, that can happen. And she's an example of that. You know, I can't speak for her, but my sense is that her ongoing visits with me requiring imaging and follow-up, I think, kind of prevents her from getting back to feeling like she doesn't have cancer. So, you know, unfortunately, I'm always a reminder that she's sick. I've tried to space those visits out, and I've tried to reduce the scanning as long as she's doing well. In fact, I have some patients who see me twice a year who are doing so well. They're also the patients that know who would pick up the phone or email me instantly if things were not going well, so I feel more comfortable there. So we, you know, in oncology and in our education programs, often talk about different types of tumor mutations. You know, for example, we have a program going out now that talks about BRAF mutations and melanoma. And one thing that seems kind of common is that these people almost always will have a tumor response, and yet they almost always, like this patient, will progress What were the options that you talked about with her six weeks ago when you found out the disease was getting worse? 
So when I told her that we're at a point now where I was convinced there was progression, we went through the options, which I laid them out. I said, you know, you continue to feel well. We could certainly ride this out longer with Erlotinib. I explained to her that we expect cancer to grow, and I couldn't promise her that at some point she would be symptomatic, and, you know, we would try to watch for that and prevent that, but I couldn't promise her that I could keep close enough tabs on her that I could keep that from happening. I explained to her that chemotherapy, something she had never received, should work well in her, that it could be done in a way that in some ways might be easier than erlotinib with drugs like pemetrexid and carboplatin, and that could work well for her. And, you know, the positive spin there, she doesn't have to take anything every day. It's every 21 days of therapy, and we don't have to be as religious about that as we get down the road. Yeah, you know, I was listening to this patient's story and thinking to myself, well, what would I want to do if it were me? And yeah, chemotherapy might help for a little bit. I want to ask you also about the, as you mentioned, there's a new TKI, Afatinib. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what Afatinib is and how it's different from Erlotinib and Jafitinib and what we know about it and what kind of research is going on on it right now. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Afatinib, like some other compounds, really two others in this class, I think commonly maybe not completely correctly referred to as next-generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors or irreversible TKIs. I mean, these were developed, in this case, this was developed by a company to maybe be better than what was currently out there, Erlotinib and Jafitinib. And certainly a lot of debating about is Erlotinib better than Jafitinib, vice versa. Suffice to say, both drugs get used worldwide and both have been associated with great outcomes in patients. And afatinib, I think, was trying to find its place in that treatment paradigm. Afatinib, at least preclinically, suggests that it could be effective against kind of known activating mutations and perhaps some of the more resistant mutations we can see in this EGFR protein where drugs like erlotinib and jafitinib maybe wouldn't be as effective. To kind of jump to the chase, the pivotal study or two pivotal studies that were trying to show afatinib's value were using modern chemotherapy in patients newly diagnosed with lung cancer that had the EGFR mutation, and they got randomized to a pemetrexid cocktail with cisplatin or to afatinib. And basically, the study was positive for progression-free survival. So what that means is Patients who took uh, fatinib lived longer without their cancer growing than patients who took chemotherapy in what would be considered globally a modern first-line therapy. And so that drug's now been approved in the first-line setting, along with erlotinib in the U.S. at least. Some concerns, Neil, that I know you're aware of are, you know, how safe, how easy is a fatinib to take? And I think that's kind of a wild card right now. The pivotal study with pemetrexid and cisplatin suggests there were high rates of GI toxicity, namely diarrhea. And although very manageable for the most part, it certainly appears on paper to perhaps be worse than what we'd expect with erlotinib or jafitinib. We were encouraged at ASCO. We saw results from another trial with afatinib compared against a gemcitabine regimen where the toxicity was lower for all grades, GI toxicity. But I think the big wild card, at least for me as a doctor in the U.S., is I haven't had a lot of experience with afatinib. I have a lot of experience with erlotinib like other oncologists in the U.S. And so how are you going to decide who gets afatinib, who gets erlotinib when the drugs have not been compared with each other and both are approved in lung cancer treatment? My own feeling is it's nice to have another option. 
there'll be some patients we all feel more comfortable with one drug over the other. And I think as we get experience with Afatinib, you know, my guess is that drug will be used a lot more, but it may take some time to figure out if one of them is better than the other. Now, Afatinib, according to what I've seen in terms of the studies of it, is considered so-called irreversible, whereas the other two are reversible. Can you talk about what that means? Well, we were talking a little bit earlier about the idea that these pills get inside of the cancer cell to shut down the, I use the term kinase, the signal at the end of the receptor, or the internal part of the receptor in the cell. And the thought is, is that if you have a drug that can irreversibly bind to block that signaling, perhaps that's going to be a more effective way of turning off the signal than one that is reversible. In other words, one that can bind, but then come out of that so-called binding pocket. I think uh, on paper, that certainly sounds to be a more effective strategy to have a drug that can do that. I think one of the questions is, if you have enough drug around at high enough concentrations, whether it's reversible or irreversible, maybe you're exceeding what you actually need at a clinical level or a biologic level to benefit a patient. So at least on paper, I think irreversible inhibitors appear more effective than the reversible inhibitors, but at least clinically, there's not been any evidence to prove that. So one final question, then we can go on to another case, is you mentioned EGFR antibodies like cetuximab and panitumumab. And while I guess the activity of those drugs by themselves in lung cancer hasn't been too impressive, there have been some work done looking at combining an EGFR antibody, and in this case it was cetuximab, with a TKI, which is a fatinib. What are your thoughts about that strategy, and is that being studied? Yeah, so just to expand on that a little bit, so we talked about the benefits of a fatinib and then cetuximab, a drug that actually has been well-studied in lung cancer, in large randomized trials. Actually, one positive study published by a colleague, Robert Perker, in The Lancet a few years ago in lung cancer, so chemotherapy with cetuximab versus chemotherapy, did improve survival. The challenge for cetuximab is that that benefit was not considered at least we assume it was not considered clinically meaningful by the regulatory agencies as that drug's not been approved in the U.S. yet, if at all. So we know the drug appears to be active, but is it active enough to warrant its approval? Cetuximab has been looked at, though, in patients who have EGFR mutations. These are patients who have responded to drugs like erlotinib, so maybe an antibody would help in that setting as well. So you take a patient who's progressed on erlotinib and give them cetuximab. Unfortunately, the clinical benefits of cetuximab alone in those patients is near zero. There's very little activity. Afatinib also has been looked at as a single agent in those settings, and that strategy has not been found to be very effective to kind of follow up erlotinib with afatinib. But when you give the two together, and this was shown preclinically by William Powell's group at Vanderbilt, when you give those two together, they're surprising synergy. And this was demonstrated actually in a clinical trial that William and several investigators around the world have been involved in where patients progressed on erlotinib or EGFR-TKI and then got exposure to a fatinib and cetuximab. And the responses have been quite dramatic even in patients who have what are considered to be resistance mutations like T790. 
the dilemma, and I need to qualify that I have not used that combination, the dilemma I hear from my colleagues involved with that trial is that the toxicity uh, is not to be underestimated, that you get obviously the skin toxicity with a fatinib and GI toxicity, but you also get skin toxicity with cetuximab, and I think many oncologists and nurses are familiar with that toxicity. What probably is a worse rash overall compared with the TKI rashes. And the toxicity with this combination, I'm told, can be quite troubling for patients. I do understand, Neil, that this combination, and I'm very supportive of this effort, is moving forward in a randomized fashion by the cooperative groups. Uh, I think it's a very important thing to move forward because it could be a great option, particularly if it can be modified to be more acceptable for our patients, like the one I presented to you who progress on erlotinib after doing well. So let's talk about your 32-year-old lady. What happened with her? So this is a really an unfortunate situation of a young woman who lives outside of Nashville who is having some pulmonary symptoms that led to a chest X-ray with a primary care physician. She's a non-smoker. And she ended up having a lesion in her right middle lobe. She ended up having a biopsy. Cancer was not suspected. It proved to be adenocarcinoma. She went for mediastinoscopy, which was negative, and then she underwent definitive lobectomy. This was about a year ago, and she ended up having a stage 1B adenocarcinoma that was actually under 3 centimeters, but I think between 2 and 3 centimeters. We really debated the role of adjuvant chemotherapy, and as you know, for 1B tumors, we've kind of moved in a direction of probably not giving adjuvant chemotherapy, at least in the U.S., certainly for tumors smaller than 4 centimeters. In her case, after much discussion and really being swayed by her age, and I should mention this was a poorly differentiated cancer for what that's worth, a high-grade tumor, it was recommended by me and her treating primary oncologist out of town to give her chemotherapy. She ended up getting cisplatin pemetrexid, which we could talk about, you know, why was that chosen. But she ended up getting that therapy, did well with treatment, finished it. And I was just kind of an outside oncologist giving my thoughts when she was diagnosed. And then I got contacted by her and her husband, unfortunately, this past summer. And she was having back pain. And long story short, she went for imaging. And an abnormality was seen in her lumbar spine. It was biopsied, and it was adenocarcinoma. The original tumor was KRAS mutated, by the way. So kind of a nightmare story to be diagnosed at 32 anyway, Kind of you feel like you're doing everything right with surgery and and even doing chemotherapy. I don't think anybody could make a good argument that venerelbine would have been done better for her than bemetrexid, and yet she's recurred as metastatic disease now, and we subsequently discovered a tumor in her lungs as well. So we were talking earlier about testing for mutations, and you mentioned there are a number now that are being tested, and it almost seems like lung cancer is starting to kind of become like breast cancer and that as soon as you get tissue, particularly in an adenocarcinoma, the lung, these mutations are being looked for. What about her? Did she have any of these mutations? She was a non-smoker. She did. And, you know, this is where things get difficult because it's hard for me to defend why we went looking for mutations last year, but we did. And we discovered, I had mentioned, but I did so quickly, she ended up having a KRAS codon 12 mutation a year ago. Of course, if I found that out today, you know, and she had a still an early stage tumor, I wouldn't know what to do with that. But perhaps that explains some of the aggressiveness of her cancer. I don't think we even know that for sure. And I guess we should say that, unfortunately, we don't have a treatment for every mutation in KRAS, which is very common 
even though we're kind of looking, as far as I've seen, there hasn't really been anything that effective. Yeah, I think our nurses, I think, are probably familiar with talking about KRAS and things like colon cancer treatment, where that's really standard now because of drugs like cetuximab, where you don't use those drugs in patients that have KRAS mutations. And in fact, insurance companies, Medicare, require you to prove that a patient doesn't have it if you're going to use those drugs. In in lung cancer, we don't have any evidence that, first of all, having a KRAS mutation determines a certain course for a patient or that he or she has to have a certain therapy. There has been work with the monoclonal antibodies, but there just have not been clear signals to how those drugs work in KRAS mutations. There have been some encouraging data in the last, well, really at ASCO of 2012, and we can get into that if you like, but I think with time, there's been a little bit of air let out of that excitement as other approaches in the same setting have not appeared to be as great. I'm referring to what we call the MEK inhibitors, M-E-K inhibitors. These are drugs designed to go after another pathway, oncogenic signaling pathway, the RAS-RAV-MEK pathway. So anyway, so we'll wait to see. There are studies ongoing to see if those therapies are going to be of value in patients like this 32-year-old woman. And we've certainly discussed that with her as well. So it's just right now, you're right, Neil, there's not an approved or known effective strategy for patients with KRAS mutations in lung cancer. So this patient actually probably is in a much more common situation than your first patient because uh, mutations actually occur in a minority of patients with lung cancer. What are the options that you thought through for her and what did you end up recommending? She's been very challenging, you know, not her fault. It's just very challenging to care for because of the terrible pain she's suffered. There's been a lot of emotional challenges with, you know, this gets to some other issues about kind of feeling like almost like her pleas for help have not been heard, you know, where she was having back pain and, no, you're 32, you've been cured, you know, let's wait and watch that. And, of course, it ends up being cancer. So a lot of challenges there for her and her husband, you know, with maybe some mistrust in healthcare about what she went through, why didn't it work? And so those have been hard. She's had some social issues too with some health problems and some family members. She has two young kids. Uh, husband works full time. And so we've been dealing with all that and she's actually seeing some folks to help with that. And then we've dealt with the pain, we've gone through radiation, surgical evaluations, and now we're on to chemotherapy. We've looked at, and I don't want you to think I look at immunotherapy options for everybody, although I do consider it, we looked at that option for her. She came back pdl one negative, so she was not a candidate for that trial. And given her symptoms, we decided it made sense to not delay care and move on with other chemotherapy. And her oncologist out of town is administering that now. So what specific chemotherapy is she receiving? What about bevacizumab? Yeah, that's a great question. So she's receiving NAB paclitaxel now with carboplatin. If you recall, she received cisplatin pemetrexid in the beginning. So my understanding is she's doing pretty well. Her husband has contacted me. I get updates and telling me that things are going much better for her. She's actually due for re-imaging in the next couple of weeks here. The BEV issue has been discussed with her. I think that's an excellent option for her as well. With paclitaxel and carboplatin, I think bevacizumab would be a very appropriate option for her. I think it's a stylistic thing, maybe a little less excitement for BEV-based regimens as time goes on, but I still think a very appropriate regimen for her, and those were all discussed with her. 
And what are the usual sort of contraindications to using bevacizumab? You know, bevacizumab is actually a very safe medication. We know this is a drug that should only be used in patients with non-squamous lung cancers, not to spend too much time in going back through the original trial, the phase two study, but basically patients with squamous cancers. There were excess patients who died of bleeding-related events, specifically hemoptysis. So the drug is not approved to be used in squamous lung cancer. So you choose a patient who has a non-squamous lung cancer. We look for patients who do not have histories of significant vascular events, specifically coronary disease or recent strokes or obvious bleeding. We look for patients whose blood pressure has been well controlled. For the most part, if you're looking at non-squamous patients, most patients seem to be good candidates for bevacizumab. It's just you have to watch out for all those things. You have to watch out for risks of vascular events, for bleeding, for hypertension that can be severe, and even proteinuria. I think most doctors, if I remember right, bevacizumab has been approved since 03 in colorectal cancer. I mean, most doctors, certainly in the community, have a great experience now, really 10 years plus bevacizumab, and I think are pretty comfortable with using it. My sense in lung cancer is it's not always the first option in non-squamous lung cancer like maybe it used to be. And you mentioned also that she's on nabpaclitaxel, actually, which was approved in lung cancer not too long ago. What do we know about that, and in what situations right now are you using it? Yeah, you know, with all the excitement of things like next-generation EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors and immunotherapy and these MEK inhibitors, you know, this is a drug that sometimes just gets lumped in the category of another chemotherapy. I mean, essentially, it's paclitaxel that's packaged or modified so that you can enhance efficacy and minimize toxicity. And in fact, that's been the case that compared to paclitaxel head-to-head, it appears to be more efficacious in terms of shrinking tumors, allowing tumors to respond compared to paclitaxel. And it appears better tolerated in terms of side effects like neuropathy. I mean, you can still get typical paclitaxel side effects with this, but it's minimized the side effect profile and made the recovery from those side effects better. I think all of us would have guessed that this drug would not be so popular when it came out. But in my experience, I hear more and more doctors talking about using nabpaclitaxel. And I think there's this particular interest in using the drug in patients with squamous lung cancers. The pivotal trial that got this drug approved by Mark Sosinski basically showed that nabpaclitaxel reduced neuropathy, improved response rates compared to paclitaxel, but there was a subset analysis, so a group of patients within the overall population that had squamous lung cancers where the benefit was particularly pronounced. So I think for a lot of doctors, my sense is that this is a drug you should think about in lung cancer, and particularly so in squamous lung cancer, where frankly, we don't have any great advances. So that's my sense is where this is moving or has moved so far. Of course, the drug was approved in breast cancer a while back, and there, one of the things we've been hearing about over the years is the fact that you don't have to use corticosteroids at the time of administration to prevent allergic reactions. And that's valued in many patients, particularly those, say, with diabetes or for some reason not to give corticosteroids. What about corticosteroids in lung cancer? How much of an advantage do you find this? 
Yeah, I think you hit right on another perk or advantage of this way of delivering paclitaxel. I don't know that, you know, in practice that that's such a big deal. I mean, I certainly hear about patients come in on various regimens and say, hey, doc, can you lower my steroid because I was up all night the next two days or my sugars have been out of control. So there's value there without question. And and actually, this whole immunotherapy stories of some interest, you know, is there some negative effect of using intensive steroids in our anti-emetic regimens? I think that's been a small advantage with this switch, but it's an advantage. Can't discount that. Now, one of the issues that's likely to come up with this lady is so-called maintenance therapy after she receives the treatment with her initial chemotherapy. In this place, carboplatin and paclitaxel. A lot of patients, as you say, do receive carboplatin, taxane, or paclitaxel with bevacizumab. How do you approach sort of the next stage with these patients after they receive the regimens in terms of what's called maintenance treatment? I think maintenance therapy, we probably make too much out of that term. I mean, I think the goal is is trying to keep patients' disease in control. And probably in the past, our drugs have not allowed that simply because of neuropathy or ongoing cytopenias or allergic reactions. And so, and certainly have a lot of data that show four cycles or six cycles is as good as more cycles without the hardship. What's changed, in my view, is some of the drugs we have now. So thinking about things like pemetrexid, even bevacizumab, you know, the napaclitaxel is kind of in its own category just because of the way that trial was designed. But I think this idea of using chemotherapy in the first-line setting in a standard fashion and then making a decision about should you continue that after you've achieved some disease control, you know, the so-called maintenance phase, I think is pretty popular now. You look at a drug like pemetrexid, a drug that can be dosed under half an hour every three weeks without a lot of side effects, certainly when you're into the fifth or seventh cycle, you know, dropping the platinum agent. I think for the most part, patients do pretty well. And we have a randomized trial that tells us patients live longer when you do that. So that's been, I think, an acceptable strategy. The bevacizumab approach of starting that with chemotherapy and then continuing that is the way the drug was first tested and ultimately approved to be used in lung cancer. So that's pretty common. We've had a little bit of a traffic jam in the last couple of years about what do you do for pemetrexid and bevacizumab? Should they both be used together? Should you stop one and continue the other? We've had a few trials here try to sort that out for us, and I think things have changed, although I'm not sure third-party payers or Medicare have quite figured that out yet. So I guess I would say maintenance therapy is much more common with drugs like pemetrexid and bevacizumab. With nabpaclitaxel, I think, you know, certainly for patients doing well who aren't having a lot of side effects, the trial that got it approved suggests you should continue it until toxicity or progression. And my guess is for doctors using that approach, they're probably using it in a maintenance fashion. So the last thing I want to ask you about is another agent that's being looked at in clinical trials, MetMab. Can you talk about what that is and what we know about it? Sure, yeah. MetMab and its other name is Onartuzumab is an interesting drug. It's an antibody that targets something called MET. We talked about MEK before M-E-K. This is MET, M-E-T. This is actually another receptor, another protein that's involved in cancer signaling. And, and so if you think about all these things like EGFR, which are targeted from the outside or within, the same holds true for the MET receptor. So there are drugs in development to 
attack the receptor from the outside of the cell. There are drugs in development to attack the receptor from the inside of the cell. And actually, there are drugs in development to target the ligand or the switch that attaches to the receptor or feeds the receptor, I should say. Onartuzumab is an antibody that goes after the receptor itself. And by attaching to the receptor, it blocks the ligand from turning it on or the finger that turns it on is a better way of saying that. Interesting drug. It's still early in terms of knowing its value, but we have a small data set from non-small cell lung cancer. We had the fortune of being involved in a trial in lung cancer where patients who had received chemotherapy, their cancer had gotten worse, were randomized to get erlotinib alone or erlotinib with onartuzumab. In this phase two study, Patients were not required to have a MET-positive tumor to get on the study, but after enrollment was complete and before the randomization was revealed, MET expression was looked for. In other words, we went back and looked at which tumors were MET, so-called MET-positive, which were MET-negative, and it turned out the group of patients who had MET-positive tumors actually appeared to do better than patients who get the combination of enerlotinib alone. That drug moved into a phase three registrational trial, which actually just finished enrollment. This is a large effort, same kind of design, except taking patients from the beginning who have met positive tumors and enrolling them to either erlotinib and onartuzumab or erlotinib alone with a goal of looking at overall survival. This trial, again, has finished enrollment. We're waiting on results. 